All right. Thank you, KDK listeners, for joining me on Meet in the Middle Show, where we share dialogue on complex issues with local thought leaders with differing opinions. The hope is for listeners to gain new perspective and empower freedom of expression. I'm Dan Richardson, and today's topic is, what does it mean to reach across the aisle? I also want to remind listeners that we're in the middle of our membership drive. I'm happy to report that we are now at $65,519 on our way to our goal of 88,100. Please, if you haven't called to renew your membership, please do it now. It's because of listeners like you that allow me to do this show. So thank you very much for your commitment to KDNK. My guest today is Russ Andrews, a jack of many trades, if you will. Russ is currently a self-employed financial advisor, a Republican candidate, and a Republican candidate for the third congressional district. He's also a husband and father, And throughout his life and career, Russ has also been an engineer, a pilot, a community volunteer. He's no stranger to radio, as he's been a guest on the David Box Show for 14 years. Welcome, Russ. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks for joining. My pleasure. Um, And thank you. Thank you for your service, your future service, possibly, uh, and for being willing willing to model respectful freedom of expression that I believe is vital to the success and of And so country. do I. Somebody's got to go to D.C. and turn the temperature down. All right. I want to say something first, if I could. Go for it. Um, you know, if you're listening to me now and you've heard me on David Bach's show and KNFO, uh, understand that that was supposed to be informative, uh, entertaining, um, and d- to drive business to my office, and it was all three of those. This is a lot more serious. Uh, you know, this. if I win this, I'm going to be representing more than three-quarters of a million people. So while I had fun before, we could still have fun, but this is going to be a lot more thoughtful, respectful, and civil than what, I, what I've done on the radio in the past. I just want you to know that. Great. Yeah. I appreciate that. Good. That's definitely part of the goal. Um, I thought I'd set the stage with survey results from a 2016 Pew Research Center report that found that uh, Republicans and Democrats have more negative views of the opposing party than at any point in nearly a quarter century. And there's some takeaways from that report, and I kind of update it with, in 20, with 22 information here in a second. So here are the six takeaways from that report. Many Democrats and, Republican asso- and Republicans associate negative characteristics with members of the other party and positive traits with their own. In, that, that was number one. Number two, in choosing a party, disliking the policies of opponents is almost as powerful a reason as liking the hmm. policies of one's own party. Hmm. Number three, political conversations highlight differences, but most think it's still possible to agree on non-political topics. Thank goodness, right? Where right. Would be? Number four, um, most have cold views of their party's member of, of the other party's members, but frigid views of the presidential candidate. So, uh, if you're a Republican, you may not like a Democrat, but you really don't like the Democratic presidential candidate, and vice versa. Number five, Republicans with few Democratic friends, and I'm sure this is the reverse, are far more likely to have, quote, very cold feelings toward Democrats or the other party. So having cross-party friendships is associated with how you view the other party. And lastly, there's rising partisan antipathy. antipathy. 
So what I thought is fa- what was fascinating about this um, was that the the data seems very similar for both Republicans and Democrats. So it's not like one party is worse than the other. It's just we're in a polarized world. Um, so updated research from 2022 indicates that things have only gotten worse. No surprise. Um, so a quick takeaway for me is if you're sick of partisanship, switch to being an independent, which I've always been, and hang with people who think differently than you. Yeah, that's a good idea. You know, 40, 47.1% of the electorate in this state is unaffiliated. Yeah. So they've taken your advice already. Um, just because we disagree with each other doesn't make us evil. Right. It, it just doesn't end. You know, the game now in D.C. or in politics in general is I got a, I scored a point for the left. I scored a point for the right. The left, the right, the left, the right. Somebody's got to go there and do the people's business. Um, and, and I look at Perry Will. Do you know Perry? Oh, I know him well. I love Perry Will. Perry uh, is our, our state senator. Perry went to um, the state senate last year and introduced 14 bills. He co-sponsored 33 or 36, but he personally introduced 14 bills. 13 of them got signed into legislation. I'll put that in perspective. Perry's a conservative. Um, the The Senate is has 35 people in it, and there are 12 Republicans. Okay, the same. The House is even more Democrat skewed. Mm-hmm. So Perry managed to reach across the aisle, make friends with people that he doesn't agree with, and explain to them his position and to win them over. And that's exactly what I plan to do. So when I get elected, my very first order or dictate to my staff, and I get 10 or 12 people, is to reach across the aisle and make appointments with every other congressperson, all 434 and all 100 senators. I'm sure they're not all going to meet with me. But try to put together 5, 10, 50-minute meetings where we can find common ground. I disagree with AOC on probably everything, but we breathe the same air. So there's got to be something that we all agree with and and that's really what I want to do is, is I have about 25, 26 policy positions, and I want to share those with people. I think some of them are, are really bipartisan, and I'm not going to be that guy. You know, Lauren Boebert was just rated uh, 433rd out of 435 in bipartisanship by Georgetown University. Wow. Now, I'm not going to go there to be bipartisan, but I would like to sit down with people and explain what my facts are. And I source my facts from mainstream publications and government uh, government numbers. So that's really, again, my first plank is to reach across the aisle, try and get the people's business done. Don't try and score political points. I have no desire to get on Fox TV. You know, I'm, I'm already infamous in this valley. So fame isn't why I'm doing it. Uh, I just think that um, it's my time to go serve. And I think I have a lot of good ideas to share. Awesome. And now that you've reached fame status at KDNK, there's no need for you to be on Fox. (laughs) That's right. Um, Well, I think that's, Russ, you made a comment about we may, we can disagree. And I I think that's what I'm trying to do. I, in reading your policies, I think you and I probably disagree on a lot of things, um, but that's okay. And we're here to model that. Um, One thing that struck me about your website, as you just sort of alluded to, was the the fact that the first on your list of policy positions was, and I quote, reach across the aisle, hence the title of this show. So tell me what you mean by that and why it's first on the list. It's first on the list because the temperature's too high. I mean, everything that you just went through, those six points, points to the fact that the temperature's too high and nothing's getting done. Nothing gets done. Nothing, you know, I have a, a beetle kill initiative. I have an immigration initiative. I have all sorts of good stuff. Rural cell phone uh, coverage, guardrails on our roads. I mean, we go over Red Mountain Pass once a month at least 
<laughs> it's terrifying. There's no guardrails. So there's just simple stuff that needs to be done. And I think reaching across the aisle, again, using the per- Perry Wills model, uh, reach across the aisle, try to make friends, go to lunch with people. I'm a diabetic. I'm not supposed to drink beer, but have a beer with a guy. You, you know, so that really is my very first plank. Absolutely. And I would suspect that's Lauren Bobert's not first plank. <laughs> All right. Um well, thanks for that, Russ. Today, I wanted to explore the challenges of doing what you say, um, what you're describing, balancing strong opinions with finding common agreement. My own pr- perspective is it's it's easier said than done, um, and what it means to compromise in today's world. And so what I thought we'd do today is talk about, you, we're certainly not going to have time to talk about all your platform ideas, but a few of them that I think resonate and are on hot topics, and talk about, well, how does it work to... Um, reach across the aisle, and I'm going to challenge you on a, f- on a few things. Um, so here we go. Um, well, and you, you already touched on this, but um, the, the question was, what are your sources of information and how to educate yourself on issues? You touched yeah. on that a second ago. I mean, I'm a very curious person. Um, I, I like to check things that I read to make sure that it's true. Um, my primary source or, or my first source every morning is the Wall Street Journal editorial section and their news. Um, I find it to be pretty spot on. And then I I check things that I read in there. You know, I I learn two or three new words every day. I'm just curious. I read a word I don't know. And I I nebbishly today, I looked that one up. But anyway, Mm -hmm. um, that was uh, the Fonz was described. (laughs) Anyway, um, I'm a curious guy. Uh, I I Google a lot. Um, You know, whenever I can, I like to use the New York Times, because typically, if I can get them to prove my point, I don't have to argue any further. Um. What else? I mean, any government source that I can for labor stats, uh, crime stats, homelessness stats, anything like that. So I do a pretty rigorous job of, of research and, and backing up my numbers. And frankly, as a conservative, you have to. You know, people people challenge conservatives. Where did you find that out? Where, where did that come from? I don't like it. If you don't send me, uh, you know, your source, then we're not going to publish your letter to the editor or whatever it is. I would argue that um, if you want to have influence, you need to do it, whether you're Republican or Democrat yeah. or whatever, but you want to be able to be influential in yeah. whatever you say. I also go to the New York Post, Washington Examiner, Washington Post, um, and local papers. Okay. So I read probably five or six papers a day. Um, well, let's dig into some topics. Um, in recent news articles and on your website and in your email to me, um, you cite how many guns you own. And I was curious, why do you feel it's important to cite how many guns you own? Here in Carbondale, it's not. Okay. But if you travel with me on Thursday down to Durango, it is. Okay. I mean, this is such a diverse district. And remember who I'm trying to primary. Yeah. Lauren Bovert. I mean, she used to wear a gun on her hip. So one of the very first questions I get asked wherever I am west of here mm-hmm. is, what's your stance on the Second Amendment? And I am totally in for it, of course. And, and I would never vote to abrogate any part of the Second Amendment. I do own 19 firearms along with my wife. I reload a lot of my own ammunition, taught my children how to do the same. So that's it's, it's important to me. Uh, it's important to my family. And it's important to people west of here. And understand again, Dan, this is an extremely diverse district. I mean, you have Aspen and you have Cortez, and never shall the twain meet. I mean, it, these are two different kinds of people. So I'm not trying to, to 
you know, placate one side or the other. I'm just who I am. And I own 19 firearms, and that's important to people west of here, and it's important to me. And and I kind of suspected that. Um, and my last show was... was uh, I, I listened to it, guns. yeah. Um, and so clearly you feel strongly about gun rights. In an effort to reach across the aisle, are you willing to discuss and address the rapid increase in gun violence? I don't mean we would do that today, but is that something... Yeah, that sure, but up? most of that gun violence happens to be in blue bubbles, known as cities. And uh, it's not so much out here in rural America. So people in rural America don't want to have their gun rights affected because people in cities don't know how to, to deal with their gun problems. And they don't. I mean, you look at Chicago, there's 40 shootings a weekend there, at least 10, 12, 15 murders. Um, people in rural Colorado, they don't want to have their gun rights. They don't want to have their guns, let's say, confiscated or restricted um, because people in Chicago and the police in Chicago and the mayor of Chicago and the city council don't want to address the problem. So, Well, I think this is one of the reasons why I asked the question. I think to only look at homicides and, and other um, gun violence is part of the issue, Part, of, but 50% of the deaths are suicide. Mm-hmm. And that's, very good. that's good for you. gun violence. And Most so, people don't know that. Right. And I think that is a very real issue in Western Colorado. And so my point in the question is not to debate that. It's just to say, um, I think reaching, in, in my opinion, reaching across the aisle means you got to talk about gun violence as much as you talk about gun rights. Yeah, you know, there are 85,000 and change federal words of gun laws. And I find that most of the time when there's a violent incident, one of those laws did not get followed. Hmm. It's that simple. So, hmm. you know, follow the existing laws, then we'll talk about new ones. Um. Okay, but just to kind of press you on the issue, it sounds like you're uh, are you open to talking about gun violence as as part of the conversation? I'm open to talking about uh again enforcing the laws that are on the books okay. and uh and controlling controlling your own population in cities like Chicago or any big city. Okay. That's what I'm open to talk about first. After you do that, then we can talk. Okay. Um, I thought what we would do, because we could talk about any one of these issues at, at great length, is yeah. I'm kind of trying to tick off some of the issues. You so know, I'd like to talk about the Uinta Railroad. I, yeah, I know you do, but that that's one where, um, like, there's there's not a lot of debate. You're, you're, I asked Lauren Bovert about this two weeks ago. She acted like she didn't know what I was talking about. Well, in western Colorado, there isn't. I mean— yeah, I mean, well, me, I guess I, I'm, I'm okay, biased. Let, yeah, I'm let me explain. Forward. You know, sure. I went to school to learn how to uh, design and operate mobile and stationary power plants and how to transport uh, toxic materials on board a ship or on board a, a you know, a, a rail car. So they're going to bring, uh, proposing to bring 185,000 rail cars per year, 500 a day through here. Each one of those things owns, uh, has 30,000 gallons of hot. They say it's going to be cool. Let me tell you something. It takes days for that stuff to cool in a tanker. It'll be hot. Along this river, if they have a derailment, we know we have three derailments every day in this country. When they have a derailment. When, when. And that stuff slips into the river. And, you know, here's the difference between that and the Exxon Valdez. The Exxon Valdez had light oil in it. 40% evaporated in the first two days. 30% went out to sea and another 30% went to the bottom. 100% of this will go to the bottom. And it will slough off oil every day for decades. It'll take billions of dollars and decades to fix it. There are 40 million people that get their water from that river. That's it's one in eight Americans almost. Um, it can't happen. It simply can't happen. And I asked Lauren Bovert about this two and a half weeks ago, and she looked at me like she didn't know what I was talking about. I couldn't believe that. So that's a big issue. That's right here. 
that's right here. I mean, that's as local as it gets. Yeah, and I and I I uh, I'm remiss to think that there's other people in this huge district that wouldn't know about that. And I do appreciate um, that you pointed that out in the website that this is a different material than way. Yeah, I mean, it has to be heated to 160 degrees Fahrenheit. And, and by the way, on board a ship, we use something called bunker sea oil. Uh, to, to it's, it has to be heated to about 140 degrees. It's okay. goo otherwise. So I know about this stuff. We do not want it in that river. I mean, it would be cataclysmic. Yeah. It would be a disaster. So that's something I will never let happen, whether I'm in Congress or not. Well, good, and I appreciate that. And, and shame on me for not thinking that there would be different opinions about that throughout the district. Why? What do you think the opinion is? I well, I think, I mean, if if, you, if, are, if you're anywhere near the Colorado River or have any kind of appreciation for the water source, you're going to be against them bringing uh, that material through the Clinton. Yeah, I don't know. I've read people in Garfield County are all for it. Huh. So Maybe I need to pay more attention. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's held up in the courts right now, but they're going to keep trying because yeah. it's going to cost billions of dollars for them to reroute it. Now, it's not a NIMBY thing for me. Uh, if I get elected, I, I will uh, represent 27 counties. Bring it through another county in our district where there's not the Colorado River, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so it's it's a no-brainer to me. Again, this is what I went to school for, so I know about it, and it, there's just no way that we can allow it to happen. Yeah, I agree. Um, um, yeah, we could get into NIMBYism, but, uh, yeah, I agree. It's, it's a different story when you're talking about the Colorado River. Yeah. Again, there. 40 million Americans get their, their water from there. It's So it's another story we could talk about, too. But anyway, go ahead. I didn't have that. Fire story. at me, man. All right. Um, you went to great length in, in the email uh, to define the word wokeism in your email, which I interpreted as maybe a derogatory term for people and ideas with whom you disagree. Mm. I mean, there's lots of things. There are lots of components to it. But essentially, it was, I think— aspects of life in, in which there was disagreement. So my question is, what value does that term hold for you, and does it help or hinder reaching across the aisle? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I could rip through what wokeism means. It means, uh, you know, 11 million illegal immigrants by the end of Joe Biden's first term. It means 107,000 synthetic opioid deaths because we have an open border. Uh, it means homelessness, drug addiction. It means a lot of things. It means... Um, you know, gender reassignment surgery for 12-year-olds who can't drink a beer for another nine years. Uh, it, it means a lot of things. Um, and you're right, it does hinder reaching across the aisle, I suppose. Um, but you need to explain to people why some of those things really are not good for America. But I think at the core, the way I see the term is it's a label. And I may or may not agree with some of those. I, I probably... But if I don't agree with all of them, am I still woke? And does it hinder us agreeing on other things if I'm already sort of being defensive because I'm now I now have this label? Well, are you labeling yourself, or are you assuming that I'm doing it? Well, I think by defining it, you're essentially saying if you meet these qualifications, you yeah, are. If you tell woke. me you're woke, then then I'll tell you why I don't think it makes sense. Okay. But. Um, but you see my point, right? Yeah, kind of. To me, I think the labeling is an impediment to reaching across the aisle, whatever it is. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, okay, well, that's great. <laughs> um, thanks for saying that. Um, see, I could say that. <laughs> okay. Good deal. Um, 
All right. I'd never heard of the success sequence before. Maybe I had, but not in those terms. And I said, uh, in your email, you state the success sequence has shown that when a child graduates from high school, gets a job, gets married, then has children in that order, he or she has a 97% chance of living in the middle class or better. By the time they reach 32, I believe. But so go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, which I think is wonderful. Um, but just so you know, I, I work for Sendigo Autism Services, um, so I, I kind of live in the world of disabilities. So, Right. And good for you, by the way. Thank you. Um, so in an effort to reach across the aisle, how would you respond to people with disabilities or people who are truly disadvantaged for whom this success sequence does not work? Well, yeah. I mean, that, that doesn't refer to people that that can't fend for them, themselves. I mean, clearly, this that's for people who literally can fend for themselves, where I'm talking about the, the mm-hmm. success sequence. But people that are in wheelchairs, and, or not even that, but people that have mental disabilities, mental illnesses, that's a totally different topic and does not apply to those folks. Okay. And, and to answer, I guess, your question, anything we can do to help those people with federal funding, I'm for. So especially Asciendo, I mean, I have a close friend who has a very autistic child, and anything that, fortunately for him, he's he's wealthy and he can handle it. He started a school that has 80 autistic kids in it. Wow. In, in fact, it's a great story. His name is Randy, and his choice was literally to put his kid into a, uh, you know, into a basement of some mental institution and chain him to the wall. I say that, but, you I mean, literally just abandon him. Mm-hmm. Instead, this guy searched and searched and decided to open a, a school called Turning Point. It's in Naperville, Illinois. And... It has changed the lives of thousands of people, not just the, the autistic kids that went through the program, but their parents and their siblings and the like. So anything that we could do for federal funding, I'm absolutely all for to help those folks. But the success sequence is really for people who have an option, you know, who decide to drop out of school. But had they stayed in school, um, graduated, gotten a job, then got married uh, by the time they're age 32. And I'm just talking about blue collar trade. Uh, you know, those people, have, again, have a 97% chance of living in the middle class. If not, you have, a, I think, a 40% chance of living or maybe even less of living in the middle class, much higher uh, incidence of poverty. But this all goes back to the welfare state, as far as I'm concerned. So in 1965, when Lyndon Johnson created the welfare state, uh, 3% of white f- kids were born into fatherless homes and 24% of black. Today, it's 18% white, 78% black kids. Now, I don't care if you're black, white, green, blue, whatever you are. If you are born into a fatherless household, you are four times more likely to live in poverty. Uh, 90% of our felons were raised in fatherless households. 71% of high school dropouts. 71% of teen pregnancies were fatherless households. Uh, 85% of arsonists are fatherless households. I could go on and on and on. Um, but but the advent of the welfare state uh, created the option of essentially when the welfare state came along, the implied promise by the government was that the government could replace the father as head of household. And it hasn't worked. It's been a catastrophe. It's ruined tens of millions of lives. And and really the success sequence that that discussion is aimed at kids who are you going to choose to stay in school? Are you going to choose to graduate? Are you going to go get a job? then get married, then have kids, and then you'll live in the middle class, 32, 32 out of 33 of you? Or do you choose to drop out and be a, a ward of the state for the rest of your life and live in poverty and probably prison? So that's really why I talk about the success sequence. Well, I think I, I appreciate you articulating that, um, being a product for a fatherless home. Are you really? It was another thing where I was like, hmm, 
what's he saying about me? Um, well, again, it's not everybody. You know, you have you had a four times more chance, more likely chance to live in poverty. You didn't. You you emerged. Good for you, man. Yeah, um, but I'm also lucky. Um, no, I, I don't know. I would describe uh, you probably worked pretty hard. I, I have, but I but I you know I think um, one of the why I picked out the success se- sequence and to take on your comment about the welfare state. I think there's a lot of people who. And more and more, I'm starting to understand that rely on the welfare state, and I think it's appropriate that that they lie, rely on the welfare state because of their inherent disadvantages. And I think that well, see, I disagree with the inherent disadvantage. I think I know where you're headed with that. Again, it's a choice, and the choice is stay in school, graduate, uh, get a job, get married, and have kids. That's the choice, or not. And if you choose not, then you choose a life of misery, especially for your kids. Most often, not always, yeah. but more often than not. Well, again, if you're if if you're an adult, if you're severely impacted by autism, for example, okay, okay, that's again, that's, that's not, I'm not, I'm one, not, right? yeah, I'm not talking about uh, you know a disability of that type. No, I'm talking about people who can make a lucid choice. But if you're not severely impacted and you might still have communication and sensory issues, you're sort of out in the workforce, but you but you do have disadvantages, um, and so there's a that's why they call it a spectrum. There's a whole spectrum, and and it's hard for the average Joe to say who who belongs on 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 a on a waiver or a disability. Um, yeah, funding. again, if somebody's on the spectrum, I'm all for federal help. And it, you tell me, you know the numbers. What is it? One in thirty people, one something like that, yeah. are on the spectrum. Yeah. Great, let's help them. I'm not talking about them. That, that has nothing. I'm talking about people who can make a lucid choice, who have the you know they're ambulatory. They can move. They can think. They can get out and. And make a difference in the world, and they choose not to. Those are the people that I'm talking about. Okay, so let's go a little bit deeper in this, because this like you, I'm actually talking about the people like you. All right, people that actually, you know, had to overcome that huge obstacle, and they did it. That's what I'm talking about. So you can't argue against yourself. <laughs> well, I can argue that um, uh, again. I, I I know for a fact that I'm lucky compared to many other people, many other Americans. Um, so I had a leg up. You know, I'm a baseball fan. I started on second or third base where a lot of folks are starting at home base. Um, and I think, again, since since you went there, to me, I think systemic racism is another area where we underestimate the impact that it has on people. See, I just wanted to say about that, okay. and I'm going to say it just one time. The failure of the the left-wing welfare state has created all of these uh, racial problems. Again, I'll go through the numbers again. If you are raised in a fatherless family, you have a four times more chance of living in poverty. 90% of felons were raised in fatherless households. Uh, 85% of arsonists, fatherless households. 71% of high school dropouts. 71% of teen pregnancies in fatherless households. So where you say that it's systemic racism, I say the racism... Uh, the, the seed for this problem was planted back in 1965 when we created the welfare state. And prior to that, I mean, black ascendancy in employment, black ascendancy in incomes, black ascendancy in, in terms of fathered, you know, full two-parent households was on the rise. And then in 1966, it stopped. So, and it went downhill from there. So you call it systemic racism, I call it the welfare state. And people say, well, Russ, how would you... What would you do to to end poverty, you know, in, let's say, the black community and the welfare state as we know it? 
the generational welfare state. Okay. So I grossly disagree with your assessment, but my question is, have you reached across the aisle to people from black families to understand their perspective? I, I don't know any around here. Um, Lori, my wife and I uh, had a renovation business for three or four years back in Delaware, and we probably had 15 black employees. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, this is where we learned what Mother's Day was. So our guys would, would work with us and you know whatever they do with their money. But the day that, that uh, their girlfriends got paid, they would, they would not be in the next two days. They'd be spending the money on something. So, uh, you know, I, I forget the question, but I get. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I guess I would just encourage you, Russ, that. Uh, we don't have black people here to reach out to is my point. But we, I've employed more black people than most people here have ever met probably. And, well, and by the way, very hard workers, the guys I had, very good guys. But uh, I, I feel, I think I was a little aloof. Um, to a lot of these issues until a few years ago. And I, I took the time to dig in and I would just encourage you to do the same because there are, there are many people out there who have a much drastically different opinion about... Oh, I know what the opinion is on the left. Trust me. And I'm telling you, the source of the majority of the problems is the welfare state. I can go through the numbers again. I don't need to look at them. Uh, you know, it, it's staggering. 70, 780 out of every thousand black kids is born without a father. That's staggering to me. It's staggering. 90% of felons are fatherless. Four times more likely, and I'm, it's not just blacks, it's, it's a, of any race, are four times more likely to live in poverty. I mean, it's staggering. But to assume that's because they made poor decisions because of legacy issues that have been in place for hundreds of years, I think is naive. Well, I disagree. Um, and I think... And we're going to have to agree to disagree. Let's move on because that's all I have to say on the topic. Sure. But, but again, I, I would encourage you to... Um, I've looked. I've studied the issue. Okay, so you're, you've checked that box. I have. Okay. Um, well, then we won't even go there. Um, but it is uh, at the bottom of the hour. It's at, it's four thirty. You're listening to the Meet in the Middle show on KDNK um, Community Access Radio. I'm the host Dan Richardson, and my guest is Russ Andrews. I'm what's on the menu. <laughs> Today's show is What Does It Mean to Reach Across the Aisle? And again, I want to remind folks that we're in the middle of our membership drive. And right now, you can call 963-0139 and make a pledge uh, to help us get to our $88,100 goal. Um, thanks for listening, and we'll bring it back to the show. Um, okay, I've been asking lots of questions, Russ, and I want to give you an opportunity. Is there another thing that you wanted to... Yeah, there's a couple things. Okay. Um, I don't know if we get into what I call red energy. No doubt you call green energy, but I think I prefer to start with immigration. Okay. Uh, by the end of Joe Biden's first term, uh, we, he will have allowed 11 million unskilled, illiterate, illegal immigrants into the country. 11 million. With them, last year, came 106,699 synthetic opioid deaths, including about 80,000 fentanyl deaths. We know where this stuff comes from. Uh, uh, the Chinese chemical companies sell about 97% of the chemicals necessary to the Jalisco and the Sinaloa cartels, and about 97 to 98% of this stuff comes north because of those cartels across our border. Um, the number of kids that died last year is the equivalent of 35 9-11-style terrorist attacks, and nobody's outraged. And nobody's outraged for a reason. It didn't happen all in one building, all in one city. It happens every day to 280, 290 kids, mostly kids of military age around the country. And I know two, pe- two parents 
who were affected by this, whose kids died, one giving mouth to mouth to save his buddy. That's it. So um, I have a solution for that stuff. First, I think we, we have to stop. We have to stem this illegal immigration. It's, I mean, even Democrat mayors, you look at Eric Adams, you look at, uh, you know, London Breed in San Francisco, even they are calling for Biden to slow this down or at least to, to help pay for it. Um, so 11 million unskilled workers, we've checked that box. I think we need to finish building the wall and patrol it, and let's get back to legal immigration, and I'll finish that on the end. The second thing is the last person to touch a fentanyl pill that sells it to a kid who dies has to be dealt the harshest, harshest possible penalty, if you know what I'm saying. The third issue, and this is the meat and potato of this idea, is you know, I, I listen to watch Fox News or whatever, and there's this discussion about sending uh, you know Navy SEALs in to blow up these labs. These labs are highly mobile, right? I mean, they could tear one down and move it in an hour, and it's in somebody else's backyard. That's not the solution to me, at least not the, the first uh, solution, the first attempt. The first thing we should do is financial, and this will hurt. This will hurt. In fact, on my radio show up with David and on KNFO last year, and I'll tell you what this guy said, but the idea is, Start initially, right away, with 50% tariffs on every good and service that comes out of China and Mexico. Double it every three months until this ends. 100% in three months, 200% in six months, uh, 400% in nine months, 800% in a year. And I'm telling you, there's nobody I know that's going to pay $360,000 to buy a $40,000 Ford car assembled in Mexico. If th- this will end within a year. Now, some guy calls the radio show last October he says, yeah, but that means I'm going to have to spend 10 or $20 to buy my $5 toy for my kid. I'm like, are you serious? 107,000 kids are going to die this year. Right. So that's the third aspect. The fourth is um, let's – I'm not a xenophobe. Let's triple legal immigration. Um, our replacement rate right now is about 1.3 million people a year. We're allowing in legally 1.13 million. Mm-hmm. I say let's let people in based on merit. Again, we've we've checked the 11 million people by the end of Biden's term. Uh, we've checked off the unskilled box. I say let doctors in. Sorry, people, no lawyers. But doctors, nurses, code writers, carpenters, truck drivers, people that can come here and immediately add to our economy. So, and th- th- That's my solution for this, and I think it is a good one. Again, circle back. 35 9-11 style uh, terrorist attacks every year on this country through this synthetic opioid poisoning. So that's what I wanted to talk about. Thank you. So this is this is a topic that I don't really have a, a lot of familiarity with, so I appreciate the statistics. But let me play devil's advocate and just challenge you to say, other than the guy who doesn't want to buy a $20 toy, what's the other side of the argument? Well, that's the side of the argument that it'll it will be create a, an economic warfare between Mexico and, and China and us. Um, tough. Well, we don't. You know, here's the problem, Dan. Americans, by and large, we live in a Barbie world. China, North Korea, Iran, Russia they they live in an Oppenheimer world. They really do. It's a Barbie for us. We're kind of la la la, whatever. I don't care, whatever you know. But no, these people. It's not a mistake that 107,000 kids of military age are dying from this stuff. That's not a coincidence. And we need to wake up and understand that China is a massive adversary of ours, and, and Mexico is just a dupe. I mean, they, they, I'm sure that the government, down, I'm not sure, whatever, but somebody's got to be taking graft down there. So, so the other side of the argument is, yeah, it'll create pain. Um, we're going to have to source stuff, you know, everything, our supply chain, other places, which I think in the long run is probably pretty good anyway. So... 
Well, I definitely agree with you that uh, um, fixing immigration so we can decide on a legal path in here makes a lot of sense because, like you said, the replacement rate isn't what it needs yeah. to be. Yeah, it's not off by much. But, again, we, we need people to come here and work. I mean, so we we've, we've just talked about the welfare state. So many people don't work. And interesting stat, Dan, I'm a financial advisor, is that after every recession, male the male um, per- labor participation rate has dropped since the 1960s. Every recession, it's dropped by one or two or three points. And the same thing happened just now after COVID. So we don't have the workers here. And in many cases, we don't have the skills because our education system literally doesn't teach math and English anymore. Mm-hmm. They really don't. In fact, I'll tell you this stat. This is a pretty good one. We have a big math problem in this country. We have a math problem, two math problems in this district. Well, fewer than four out of every hundred high school graduates goes on to college to earn a STEM degree, a science, technology, engineering, mathematics degree. So I'm an engineer. There are exactly nine engineers in Congress. There are 175 lawyers. Nine engineers, Okay. Um, we have two big math problems in this district as a Republican. The first one is as a Republican, and that is at the ballot box. The other one's at the cash re- register. So, folks, if you're listening to this, this is not personal between me and uh, Lauren Bobert. I voted for Lauren three times. I endorsed her on my radio show twice. Um, but we have a big math problem if you're a Republican. This district, CD3, leans uh, Republican by 27,000 votes. Lauren Boebert won the district uh, by 26,500 votes in 2020. She won it by 546 votes last year, the closest uh, congressional race in the country. Uh, Three weeks ago in a poll, she was trailing Adam Frisch by 8,600. And after the Buell Theater incident, who knows? So that's a big math problem if you're a Republican. If you're just a citizen here, we have another math problem. When we write our checks to the Internal Revenue Service every year, uh, they send that money off to faceless bureaucrats in D.C., We can only hope and pray that the representative that we send to Congress will work to claw back our tax dollars to the district. Well, last year, Lauren Boebert brought back $1.1 billion fewer dollars to this district than the average district in the state. So what does that mean? That's $5,800 per family of four that CDOT didn't have to spend on building bridges, fixing roads, buying equipment that our health care facilities didn't have to reach out to rural patients in our district. So those are two big problems. That I, we have. I hear you. And thanks for letting me t- say that. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. And, and that was one of the questions I was going to ask about, but I'm not going to. Um, you mentioned Ren Energy, and I want to pick on you one more time before I go I, for I it. You're not going to win this one. Um, this is what I went to school for, man. Well, uh, n- no, it's a little bit different. In the Post-Independent article I read about your candidacy, you reportedly said that climate change is real. Is that a fair? Is that reporter? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, but on your website, you refer to... If, to global warming as a hoax. Now, my campaign manager has to fix that, don't you? Okay. <laughs> um, so I guess is is having those two perspectives conducive to reaching across the aisle? Uh, well, let me put it like this. Uh, the globe has, it warms on average by 0.01 degrees Fahrenheit every year. That is not an existential threat. The way that it's used is hoax-ish. I mean, okay. let's talk about the EVs. Uh, Ford right now just reported in the Wall Street Journal last week. For every EV that they uh, sell, they lose uh, $60,000. On April 18th, I sent this to you earlier. I didn't really give you a heads up on it. On April 18th in the Wall Street Journal, uh, Holman Jenkins wrote a great article. It showed that if we replace every uh, gasoline-powered car and van in this country, about 260 million vehicles, everyone with an EV, that it would reduce global greenhouse gas emissions by 0.18%. 
0.18%. So if anybody from the Aspen City Council is listening, that means that 99.82% of global emissions will continue. So nobody can convince me that digging massive holes in the planet that bring up radioactive waste, you know, every ton of rare earth metal that you bring up brings up a ton of radioactive waste that sits on the surface. Nobody can convince me that digging massive holes in the planet to reduce global warming by uh, gases by 0.18% makes any sense. So when I call it that word you used, which I won't repeat, mm-hmm. um, uh, I, there are people that stand to profit in a big way from this, and there is a, a much better way to, to deal with this issue if you really want to replace gasoline-powered cars. It's not with electricity that we don't have. In fact, uh, the, the party on the left is trying to replace baseline Always there electricity with intermittent, not always there electricity, and somehow we're going to power up our, our cars with that. They can't even power up their cars in the summer in California part of the time now. So the idea that would make way more sense as an engineer is to use hydrogen cells, and I can get into that if you want. But this EV idea where you're going to eliminate 0.18% of all greenhouse gases is ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. But I'm hearing... You're, and I understand where you're coming from. You're poking holes on certain in certain solutions, which is well. That's the big solution, isn't it? Well, you were talking about EVs in particular, but and I'm also talking about solar and wind. I mean, I'm all for those, uh, but again, understand that about 65 percent of the components for the supply chain are sourced through China. That's why I call it red energy, communist red China. And without subsidies, it spills red ink. But my question is. Is it even is it even on your on your um, list of possibilities to discuss solutions to climate change? Well, I've just I told you I just alluded to one. If you want to ask me about it, hydrogen cells. Right, but I, I guess what I'm saying though, it it doesn't sound like you think that there's a problem to address. There's not an existential problem when the pl- okay. planet's growing or, or warming at zero point zero one degrees Fahrenheit every year. That's something that c- can be uh, controlled at one t- uh, t- yeah one two thousandth the cost. Uh, of what we're, we would, what is proposed, and that would be sulfated aerosols, where you have jets essentially flying up in the stratosphere, injecting the atmosphere with, with what is essentially volcanic ash. All we need to do to stop any and all warming is to reflect just 1% of the sunlight that's coming into our, our planet. And that's uh, one way you can do it. It costs virtually nothing compared to the other solutions that these these folks put out there because these other solutions aren't serious but they do cost a lot of money, $20 trillion. It'll cost $20 trillion to electrify our fleet. And, and I'm telling you, in the same period of time, let's say 25 years, it would cost maybe $125 billion, which is pennies, not even pennies. It's quarter pennies on the dollar. So why doesn't somebody talk about that as a solution? And why doesn't somebody talk about hydrogen cells instead of EVs? Oh, there's people who've been talking about hydrogen not cells many. for a long time. Um, and I think this is another area where you and I may disagree. Um, but... Tell me how, given that I would say, I don't know, maybe a majority of folks in in Congress have um, embraced the idea of a clean energy economy, to use that Well, term. you call it clean. So tell me again. To build a windmill, yes, well, well, hold on, hold on. To build a windmill, there's 752 pounds of rare earth metals. You know, you might get a pound out of a ton of ore. For every ton of ore, that's 2,000 pounds that you pull out of the ground. That's a ton of radioactive waste that sits there. Tell me how that's green. I don't get it. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm asking you. How do you embrace someone who? Someone. How, how you explain. Make, how you explain that? the facts to them. Explain the facts. They're not evil because they don't agree with me. Explain the facts and let them make their own conclusion. Okay. I'm um, willing to do that. Uh, 
All right. I, I think, like like I said, when you start the argument by saying it's a hoax, and I realize that— Well, uh, you started the argument by that. saying that, not me. Well, fair, fair point. Okay. Um, I think it's pretty tough to reach across the aisle. I think you're starting mm-hmm. at a deficit at that point. Um, okay. I wanted to kind of shift back to um, talking about the topic of reaching across the, the aisle rather than just the, the, the specific topics um, that you mentioned on your website. You already mentioned Perry Will. Yep. But I was going to ask, is there anyone in local state or local politics who you admire, respect as someone who is effective at reaching across Perry's the, the man. He's yeah. my hero. And I will model my, my career after him. By the way, when I mention career, if I get elected, it's only six years. That's all I'm going to spend there. Okay. That's enough for me. I'm, I'll be 73 by then. That's enough. If I can't get the majority of my agenda done, then uh, it's time for me to go anyway. Um, but Perry Will is absolutely my hero. Cleve Simpson's another guy. I don't know Cleve. He's from the southern tier of the state. Okay. Another like-minded guy with with Perry. Okay. Anybody, and another engineer, I might add. So. Um, anybody in Congress currently that you would put on that list? That's a great question. Um, oh, yeah. John Kennedy, senator from Louisiana. Okay. And what is it about? What? His sense of humor. Okay. Pretty important. I yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, okay. Anybody eh, local or in Congress um, that you think does a poor job reaching across the aisle? Well, I'm not going to go there. I already mentioned her name. Yeah. I and, mean, if, when she's 433rd in bipartisanship, come on. That speaks for itself. Yeah. Or any uh, – well, let's just go to this one. Um, the, the spending bills in Congress right now, mm-hmm. I think that's a perfect example of – an opportunity to reach across the aisle or not. Mm-hmm. So tell me your thoughts on what's happening in Washington right there. Well, first off, the debt ceiling is a joke. I mean, how many times has it, has it been abrogated? 50, 45? I don't even know. Yeah. So it, it doesn't exist is the real point. It exists as a, a a talking point, a fire point, a way to score points for your, your team, Team Blue or Team Red. Again, it does nothing to get the people's business done. But I, I want to dig deeper. Not, I don't want you to, like— Call you know call out anybody, but with the spending bills, do you feel like um, you know what would be your perspective if you were in? Congress well, right let's now? look at it from uh, you know the the old thirty thousand foot down. We currently have about two hundred and fifty trillion trillion. That's a quarter of a quadrillion dollars in unfunded liabilities. Mm-hmm. This budget is going to be a two trillion dollar deficit. I mean, that's two with twelve zeros. People yeah. don't seem to get that. Uh, it's it's Ben Stein's father. I forget his first name. Uh, another economist said, you know, if something's not sustainable, it won't go on forever. Well, we can't continue at this pace. Mm-hmm. So you either raise taxes, you, you cut spending. 72 cents of every dollar that gets spent by the federal government is simple income re- redistribution. 28 cents goes to fund the government, the military, and service or debt. So something's got to give. It just does. So what would be your position on Congress right now? Would you be... Uh, opposing any spending bill? And wh- no, I think you need to work behind the scenes. Don't make a spectacle of yourself. Okay. You know, to try and drag people across the aisle with you. Um, compromise. I mean, our country was born of, of compromise. So, so even though, and, and I agree that spending is out of control, so you're not going to get an argument out of me, but you're saying that there is a there is a uh, an avenue for compromise for you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Again, that's kind of what this is all about for me. A compromise in the sense that not like not like Democrats. Compromise them as yeah, you vote with me. 
let's compromise and literally meet in, in the middle. I mean, that's how the country was founded. I, I don't think that's just democratic. Yeah, really kind of it is. Really, Russ? Yeah, it kind of is, yeah. Uh, so you don't think there's any Republican out there who says either vote with me or... or oh, yeah, sure, there are. Matt Gates and okay. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Of course there are. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's my point. That's yeah, kind of part there of are. the show. Of course there are. Okay. Um, uh, okay. Um, so, f- uh, how about of all the issues you reference on your website, is there one where you feel like you particularly, um, reach across the aisle really well? And maybe two, cause you already mentioned that you we haven't to- talked about beetle kill, have we? I don't think okay, we well, this is the big one for me. This would be the very first thing that I try to get done after reaching across the aisle. There are 900 million dead trees on 5.1 million acres of our forest floors in this state alone. There are 6 billion dead beetle kill trees in the Intermountain area, and there are other insects invading species up in New Hampshire, Rhode Island, uh, you know, Maine, and upstate New York, uh, eastern part. So my idea is pretty simple. At this point, the... The government, of course, doesn't incentivize removal of those trees. They disincentivize. They they charge people to remove that stuff. Creates a massive wildland fire hazard. And to 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 a Democrat's point of view, Don't point uh, it adds it adds twenty five percent greenhouse gases to the uh, forest ecosystem. So I think this is an easy easy sell. Let's pay people five or ten bucks a log to take it out. And any product that they make out of that, whether it's firewood, paneling, chairs, tables, whatever it is, they get to sell it for, uh, tax-free, federal tax-free. And if there's 900 million dead trees, we can't get to all of them, but I'll bet you we can get to 300 or 400 million of them. And that would just do wonders to clean up our forest. So another topic that I don't feel particularly informed about, but I remember years and years ago, um, I was on Glenwood Springs City Council, and we had a discussion about this. And there were um, folks from various organizations who said, "No, don't pull that food out of the out of the forest. That's food for the forest. We need that nutrient in there." Well, t- truth be told, it's poor for- forest management. It really is. I mean, the natural cycle of a forest is it should burn, mm-hmm. and that's what brings the aspen seeds back. And, and you know, that's just the natural cycle. And sure. we we prevent that. We preclude that from happening. Um, I'm just saying, well, this is a cleanup method. Uh, there's plenty of food out there. I hunt. I'm in the forest a lot. There's plenty of food. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. There's a lot of fall timber out there. Um, in fact, have you ever tried to walk off trail in the forest? Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's well. it's practically impossible. It might take you an hour to go a half a mile, three quarters of a mile. Yeah, especially with a rifle over your shoulder. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I know it. Um, One what, of 19. What's that? One of 19. Oh, okay. Um, All right. Um, We are getting close to time. Just so you know, we'll wind down around 4.56. For you, is reaching across the aisle a goal? Like, is it something that you feel is pretty important or is it a means to the end? You know? Yeah, it's it's both. It's both. I mean, I want to, I'm not just going there to win. I don't just want to, I I don't particularly like Washington, D.C. I used to live right there um, when I worked for the Navy as, as an engineer. Um, I don't want, really want to leave home. I just think it's my duty. I think I have some pretty good ideas. I want to get that stuff accomplished. So, yeah, it, it reached across the aisle. I want to do it to meet people. You know, I'm I'm a pretty affable guy, believe it or not. And uh, and I want to get things done. So, yeah, if it's a means to get things done, of course, that's the idea. Let's go do the people's business. Let's get stuff done. Let's get stuff done for rural Colorado. 
are there other things in I, I didn't think about this but are there other things what i'm hearing from you is you're trying to understand um the other perspectives you're going to try and uh, bring the data to convince people um but are there other things that you think can happen in congress to help uh eliminate some of this uh you know these statistics that i rattled off before where we're so polarized yeah I don't know. I really don't know what you mean. I mean, yeah, that's my whole idea is to get there and try and fix things and not just point fingers at people and, and try to get on the news. And, wow, I scored a point. It's not, you know, it's not a football game for me. It's uh, it's go there and get things done. If I'm going to if I'm going to spend six of the best years I have left, uh, you know, in D.C., I better be getting things done. That's all there is to it. Otherwise, I, and if I'm not having fun, I mean, I'm, I'm having fun doing this, even though it's a lot of hard work. Uh, a lot of thousands of miles on my truck, but but if I'm not having fun and if I'm not getting things done, then I'm not going to do it. I mean, that's all there is to it. I and by it. fun, by by the way, I mean helping people to me is fun. Uh, I mean, there's somebody that you know. I helped her get a movie deal about two months ago, and I just met her. And um, it's fun to help people. It really is. It changes their lives, yeah. and I think that's cool. So. I agree. I was sort of alluding to things like. Uh, us independents being allowed to vote in primaries and other. And by the way, way, by the way, you want to talk about that? I totally agree with you. I mean, the Republican Party is against that, but I think that uh, that's short-sighted. Um, the unaffil- from my perspective, Republicans make up twenty-four percent of the electorate in the state. We need the unaffiliated to join our party, uh, and I think you need to train the unaffiliated how to vote Republican. So when you circle my name <laughs> in the primary next year. <laughs> don't forget to do it in the general election. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear you think, think that. I think it uh, it forces those on either extreme uh, to moderate. Yes, it does. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, th- there's a faction of my party that is so opposed to that, unfortunately. Uh, although one of my first guests was uh, Greg Rippey, who I really respect. Oh, Greg is the man. He's another politician. Well, yeah, he's a politician who I love. Yeah. He's, he's such a good guy. Um, and he, too— uh, thought it was a good idea. So yeah. um, anyway, uh, let's see how my timing is. My final question. Um, Why am I such a good guy? <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you've made your case, right? <laughs> um, so if you were elected to Congress and say I was a Democratic congressman, which I'm not, um, how would you want me to reach across the aisle for you? Just come over, shake my hand, say you want to go have lunch. Let's do it. Give me more. Give me more. Like, what are there particular issues? Hey, you know, Russ, uh, I disagree with you on global warming or the welfare state or whatever it is. I said, well, fine. Tell me. Explain it to me. Give me facts. Tell me why. I'm open. I'm open. I mean, I was out in Grand Junction on Saturday or Friday night, and I one of my ideas is to um, insist on paper ballots and hand counts, and somebody talked me out of that. I mean, it took a while. But the point is, I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to change my mind if it makes sense, and if it makes sense for Western Colorado. Um, uh, okay. Um, By the way, for doing this once a month, I think you do pretty good. Oh, thanks. Um, easier said than done. Any? We got about a minute and a half left. Any? Uh, uh, and and ideally, this isn't a campaign pitch, but yeah, well, just another policy stuff. idea. Um, sure. Rural cell towers. So my wife and I were headed to the La Plata County Fair back in August, and there are, there's only one bar between Carbondale and Paonia, 
And that's the Redstone Inn. I mean, there, there are no bars on your cell phone. So we got across the Peony uh, a Reservoir, and there's a woman there who's stranded. Her truck broke down, and she's waving us down, and she tells us what happened. And, she, of course, there's no cell reception. So she says, here's my husband's uh, cell number. When you get to Peony, would you please text him or call him and tell him to come fetch me? Which, of course, we did, and we, we gained two new voters that day. But, but the point is this. It's a safety issue. And I'm in active talks right now with a guy, on, with a friend of mine, who uh, there were two companies back in the 90s that installed and constructed all the new cell towers. So we're trying to figure out what the cost would be in rural Colorado uh, to, to get cell coverage. We are 35th in the country in cell coverage. Uh, 79.6% of the state has the coverage. Wow. And the other 20.4% is right here in the Western District, the CD3. So yeah. that's a big thing to me. Uh, thank you, Russ. Thanks thank for you. joining me today. It was an honor. Today's show was What Does It Mean to Reach Across the Aisle? I'm Dan Richardson. Thanks for listening to KDNK and the Meet in the Middle show. Uh, we'll be back in a month for the next show. And again, I want to remind folks that we're in the middle of a membership drive. The goal is to reach $88,100, hopefully by Friday. And before the show started, we were at $65,519. If you support public affairs show and the meet in the middle show i encourage you to call kate and k right now uh and and support kate and k uh russ any any encouragement for folks to join yeah you know what i'm telling you i'm actively fundraising right now it's really hard it is i mean we're doing a great job we've met our goal for this quarter it it's a lot of work and i'm telling you i'm in the studio for the first time these people are hard workers they have nothing but the community in mind uh, helping you and bringing you people information Buck up. Give, give him some money. Give him some money. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Russ. Thank you, thank you Eric Dan. and Lori, for joining us. And uh, um, see you next month.